Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. So I'll start off by saying uh, if you happen to be in the New York City area and you are able to teach Closure Bridge, the Closure Bridge NYC event November 20th and 21st could use your help. Drop on by closurebridge.org uh, and uh, check that out. They definitely need some, uh, could use some uh, additional help. <laughs> the event's been so successful that they'd like to get the teacher to student ratio headed in the right direction. Uh, the event's still going on, there's nothing to worry about there, but. Um, but it would be great for the students to have a couple more people who are knowledgeable about Closure helping out. So uh, do go by closurebridge.org if you're anywhere near New York City. This is uh, November 20th and 21st in the year 2015. And uh, lend a hand, that'd be great. So thank you if you do that, by the way. It's a, it's a good effort, a good uh, event, great event, a night to help people out that way. All right, I want to mention another thing, uh, the Closure Cup uh, 2015. We've talked briefly about this before. So this is a competition for people to kind of jump in and very rapidly develop an application in Closure. A lot of fun. A lot of people participate. Um, it's one of those, you know, sort of a hackathon type events where you just really bear down on a problem for a, a short period of time. Um, and that's coming up real fast. It's coming up December 5th and 6th. Again, we're talking 2015. Um, you can find out more about that um, at ClosureCup.com. So uh, definitely looking forward to seeing what people come up with this year. It's always really fun to watch people, uh, you know, just tackle a problem in such a short time frame. We talked about the, uh, uh, the Rails contest on this uh, show a few years ago now, and uh, Closure Cup is a very similar idea. So go by ClosureCup.com, check that out. Maybe participate. I think uh, you'd have fun. Um, so as this episode comes out, uh, the Closure Conj is going on. So if you happen to be hearing this, uh, while you're at the Conj in Philadelphia, please do stop by the Cognitech table. Uh, we would love to meet you. We will have Cognicast stickers there. Um, I will be wandering around at the conference as well. If you see me, please come up and say hi. I'll have stickers too. But, um, you know, the main thing is to, to talk to you. So, uh, you know, if you see any of us, any Cognitech, um, just give us a shout. We'd love to talk to you. Um, uh, that is especially true for me, and I think I can speak uh, safely to say for Kim as well. And But I think it's true, really, for all of us. So... Um, hope to see you there. I think that's all for announcements today, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 91 of the Cognicast. Awesome, then we'll kick it off. Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Cognicast. Today is Wednesday, October 7th, and uh, we're very pleased today to welcome our guest. He comes to us all the way from New Ulm, Germany. Uh, he is a developer, he's a contributor to Clojure, he's been doing Clojure for a very long time. He's also the father of four daughters, so he's a clearly a hard-working person both at work and outside. I'm talking about Billy Meyer. Welcome to the show, Billy. Hello, Craig. It's nice a, to be on the show. Well, it's great to have you. We, uh, your name has come up a bunch of times when we when we talk about potential guests, and uh, we're very pleased that we were able to make it happen and that you're here to, to talk to us today. Um, so we do start out with a question before we get into all the other questions. There's one we always start with, which is to ask you to share with us some experience related to, in whatever way you decide that means to art. Uh, you can tell us a story. You can talk about a movie you've seen. You could describe a life-size sculpture 
that you've created, whatever. I mean, it, whatever, it, whatever it means to you. So what would you like to share with us today? Um, well, show is a is a good point because uh, when you show when you show something on a on a podcast, I guess besides like uh, talking about the link or having in the after show links, uh, after show notes uh, some links, um, talking about some like audio performance and um, the first conductor of the of my hometown's uh, theater, the first conductor which are which is called, or the, the position is called, like the Kapellmeister, I learned that this is also like the technical term in English, uh, was uh, Herbert von Karajan. And one of his, uh, well, most famous, or one of the most famous pieces, I guess, that he conducted was Ander Schönen Donau von uh, Johann Strauss dem Zweiten. So that's better known in English as the Blue Danube. And it's featured on the Space Odyssey soundtrack. Mm. And I have a, like a personal relation to that piece because, um, first of all, my hometown, Neue Ulm, is uh, like the other side of the Danube River than Ulm. But they're not technically a twin town, but, well, they're two towns which are very close together. Yeah, the river is the Danube River, and I spent a couple of days in Vienna this year, and this was a very great trip with all my children and visit, visiting all the whatever exhibitions and that's the city of music and so that's what that was like the first thing that I I came up with in my mind when I read about or when you asked me about um, a piece of art cool yeah that's obviously very well known and I I, uh, I, I noticed your pronunciation of your hometown uh, which I obviously yes. mangled when I when I said it but I, ha I have an excuse um, and I think it's an interesting maybe connection between us although a minor one uh, so I was born in a town called New Ulm, uh, spelled in the English way N-E-W Ulm, oh, uh, Minnesota, right. which is a very, yeah. very G German town. Like the people there, uh, there are a large number of people there who trace their ancestry back to to Germany over however many generations. So, um, and there's even a statue on the hill there of a of a, a historical 12th century Saxon warrior that we all called Herman the German. So it's a very... Herman the German, yeah. <laughs> so New Ulm is, as far as I know, one of the twin towns of Neu Ulm. So mm -hmm. there's like more than... Yeah, the Exodal connection is that you've been born there. But there's, a, yeah, student exchange and all that between those towns. Well, that's very cool. So... Uh, well, so I think people that have been around the closure community have probably heard your name... Um, they maybe have seen you by a, a different name. You, you also are known occasionally as a Philip Meyer, but uh, <laughs> but so you're the so maybe let's just let you tell the story. So you've been with and working with and around closure for quite a while. Maybe you can kind of yeah. take us through your arc and the various things that you've done. Yeah, sure. So yeah, regarding my name, I all we talked about that in the like pre-show uh, conversation. It's a continuous source of confusion. <laughs> I don't know why, but because uh, I guess it's pretty common for people to have uh, nicknames, not only in Germany but also in the U.S. But the yeah, the William, Billy, Philip thing is uh, pretty confusing. Um, but that's how it is. So I'm I'm listening to both names, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like the personal and personal conversation or like that, I'm I'm going by Billy and uh, yeah, I, I think I will react faster, so lower latency. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you asked me about my way into closure or what I'm doing in closure, right? Mm -hmm. I've got a, I guess, a somewhat interesting story. Not not about me, but uh, how I came to closure. Because 
I'm, I was a Java developer for a long time. I started with Java, I, if I remember correctly, it was about 1995 or 1996, so where Java was only available in this weird thing called a browser. And I think this is what the, was the hot Java browser at that time by Sun. Uh, but I liked this language because it was garbage collected, it was uh, object orientated, it has some had some bytecode and was portable and like that. So it had a lot of buzzwords and everybody told me I would be crazy because it was uh, way too slow and garbage collection never will work and uh, virtual machines never will be performant and like that. But I liked it and I hated to do uh, something like C and this... Uh, like manual memory management stuff. And at that point, at that time, I mostly did professional web development with Perl, which was state of the art at that time. But this was something which uh, it wasn't object oriented. And I thought at that time that that would be like the holy grail, the, the silver bullet for software development. So I did Java for a long time. But I guess about five, six, seven years ago, I, I realized that Java somewhat stopped developing and it, the language did not become any, any more powerful or the, cons the things you could build with it. Yeah, it, it was very repetitive and verbose and a lot of cargo culting and one framework after the other. And so I was looking around for something new and I stumbled over Lisp again because Lisp always, uh, any type of Lisp always impressed me. This like thing that with about 80 lines of code or around about that, you can evaluate yourself or a Lisp can evaluate itself in a very, very minimal way, but no way to even build a, a Java syntax lexer in 80 lines of Java code. And then I was looking for a Lisp which runs on the Java virtual machine because I found it's very fortunate to have like uh, this platform independence regarding the fact that I was doing web development and I had like Linux servers and maybe even other Unix systems and I had Windows machines and all, all that. So being yeah, developed once, run everywhere, uh, sounded like a, a nice property. Um, and then I, uh, I think I found closure at some point where, when it was very, very new. But I put it aside because it wasn't a common list when I was like, uh, oh, we have a standard. We should, when we build something, we should do this after like the official standard. And so I put it away and tried out different other lists like Steelbank, common lisp, and Arm Beer, I guess. Yeah, but I, I failed with that. And um, later, later on, after looking for different uh, like web frameworks and how we could build web applications better and faster. I found, I don't, do not remember exactly why, but I found uh, Clojure again and I dropped this yeah, very silly idea to that, that a Lisp should be a common Lisp and took a look at Clojure. And uh, yeah, I, I felt very, very impressed and uh, yeah, by all the power you had and <laughs> it ran on, a virtual, on, the, on the Java virtual machine, but you had interop and all the, the good thing, things by Clojure. And I guess that should be like five years ago, six years ago, I don't know. Should should look this up. So I guess it was like closure one point two or maybe one point three. I guess one point three where 
around the corner at that time. Yeah, that's how I stumbled over closure twice. And yeah, it's the same story. Like when I met my wife, I met her, I guess, three times. After being <laughs> <laughs> wow, that might be the first time I've ever heard. So, that, so your story is an interesting one, but it's also a familiar <laughs> one. I think you know, like I've gone through a similar arc, and other uh, others. Uh, in the community have as well, you know, arrived at Java, saw it had a lot of promise, eventually we're looking for something more powerful, yeah. like Lisp, etc. But I've never heard anybody compare it to when they meet their wife. I think that's fantastic. Um, well, this will come back at me, but um, <laughs> I guess my wife will not uh, listen to this episode. So, Well, will you give me your IP and I'll block it so she can't download it. How's that sound? Ah, great. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> No, that's that's awesome. So, um, and I actually want to drill down on a little bit of that. Uh, I remember. So you you said that you had tried uh, common lisps and you you didn't yeah. it didn't work for you. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting statement because when you look at the the vast array of languages that are available to us these days, there's a sense in which we have a lot in common with common lisp. Maybe more in common in some ways. Um, I think it's hard to measure that quantitatively, but more in common than we have maybe with Java. So what, how do you account for your dissatisfaction with common lists? Like what was it about closure versus common lists? But you're like, well, this, this mm -hmm. other thing works better for me. Yeah, I never thought about that in detail, but I, I, I guess it's, it's two things. Um, the first thing is, which is this, uh, this, typical, this typical case of dead by committee. When you, whenever you try to, to like use two different common Lisp implementation, especially, for example, on a Windows system, you're, you're going to recognize that there's, yeah, there's a standard which is on paper, but alone the, the way how you can build the abstraction, the common Lisp abstraction of a, of a file path or file name, or <laughs> yes. like what is a, a Java I.O. file thing we have, because common list specifies things like different volumes. Ah, we have this in, in Windows with letter drives and like that, or revisions, which you have on, on VMS, so file revisions and whatever, and host names and all that. And now you, you have like multiple ways to project a, whatever, a Linux file path or a Windows file path, which a file name which lies on a particular drive onto this data structure. And every common Lisp implementation does it in a different way, uh, which means you're not compatible. And when you see that most of the time you're spending with uh, fighting some kind of macro preprocessor to decide on the actual Lisp compiler, which is the right way to build a file name, that was getting into my way. Hmm. The next thing is why I felt much more productive with Clojure. And I guess... The language I was looking into very seriously before Clojure was um, was Erlang and was Haskell is the thing with immutability. So that was the point which got, for me, Clojure, this magic kind of power. The combination of the expressiveness of Lisp, but no, like, yeah, ad hoc, random mutability, immutable, uh, immutable data structures and all that. So I guess that was the point which made Closure is so powerful, at least for me. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, and I, I wonder. So, I mean, I, I, I will never, I will never find people's closure origin stories tiring. I think it's so interesting <laughs> that similarities that you know, so many people from, you know, different backgrounds um, and technologies can arrive uh, in, along similar but not the same paths. So, so I guess my question is, for me, when I came over to closure, uh, and I kind of sort of came through common list briefly, the way same way that you did. 
And when I arrived, I'm like, oh, this is great, right? A common lisp, or sorry, a lisp rather, on the JVM. Fantastic. And I kind of thought to myself, well, this will take some adjustment. You know, when I, when I started doing C Sharp after C++, that took some adjustment for sure. Yep. This will yep. take some adjustment too. And I thought the adjustment would be going from an Algol family language like C Sharp to a Lisp family language. When in point of fact, it was going from an OO language to a, to a functional uh, yep. language or mostly functional, however you want to put it. Did you find that to be uh, – which of the various things that you were changing – from and to, did you find to be the the biggest adjustment? Looking back, I, I think the the switch to a real functional language was the biggest change. But I did not recognize that at this point because I had some experience with uh, Haskell and, and uh, Erlang. So it was at that point pretty natural to me. But uh, when I started with Clojure, as I guess everybody, I did not do it for a living. So I had to, as a freelance or contractor, I had to, to do some paid work and which was typically in Java. And that was when I when it started to hurt. <laughs> like you have to like poke in this objects and mutate it during iteration. And who yeah, when you ever had when you ever tried to remove a single entry of a Java collection while iterating over it in a whatever, not even thread safe, but in a like compact way without copying the whole collection or whatever and, and having like five local variables and helper things or calling iterator remove, it doesn't work and when it works it's, it's pretty verbose so I, yeah, I, I, that was when I recognized how powerful the, not the immutability itself was but the closure interface to immutability all those update in and associate in functions and it was so yeah well balanced so that all those functions played together like in a yeah we're back to music like in a like in a symphony and where is whereas in java it was so yeah a lot of code and a lot of indexing and temporary stuff which you had yeah to remember and to remove and uh, reuse and whatever yeah. so i guess that's the biggest biggest switch was like yeah the function programming yeah 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 so I, I think you've really hit an important point which is the uh the quality of the persistent collections and, yep. and and i think to some degree probably a large degree having them be the default way so i was just recently at RacketCon. racket's a super interesting language with a yeah. really excellent user community and um you know developer community and they one of the presentations was alexis king has developed a closure style set of uh, persistent immutable collections with a very similar nicely factored API. Um, and I think that's great. And, you know, um, we've, we've certainly taken things from Racket. You know, they've, they've done a lot for the programming world. And so it's nice to yeah. see that some of those ideas are... And, I'm, and Rich would be the first to say that he did not originate that technology. But it's nice to see them drawing from our experience with it, at least. But it'll be interesting to me to see whether whether introducing them has the same impact given that they're not the kind of default data structures. Like you have all these existing mm -hmm. libraries and everything that are not using those data structures. And, and, and I wonder whether you agree with me in that part of the power with those things is not only kind of their inherent properties, but also the fact that whenever you pick up a library, you can be pretty much guaranteed that the, that library is also when it hands you a vector, that that vector is in fact the same persistent immutable uh, vector mm -hmm. that you're used to working with. What, what do you think? Is that like a reasonable assumption on my part? 
Um, yes, and I think it's 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 pretty reasonable because it's uh, pretty hard to <laughs> enclosure to mutate something in place. So, so you when you want to build something where you pass a, a value or an instance by by reference, it, because enclosure you have to make this explicit using whatever container or reference type. I can yeah be sure that the vector I pass in isn't mutated because there's no interface for the library to to do that right. And do you think that, um, I'll ask you a leading question. <laughs> you know, we've both been doing closure along similar uh, trajectories for about the same amount of time. So yeah. maybe the answer to this question is obvious, but I'm still interested to hear your perspective. So, sure. like, it seems to me like it's just super valuable that we're all working on the same thing. Not, not so much that it's mm. not going to change, but not only that, but, like, you and I have the same set of very small choices in terms of what, what we can hand back and forth. So I mean, we're going to talk about Liberator, right? This is one of the pieces of software, one of the pieces of software you're, you're, you're known for, right? Yeah. And so you, you have written this thing and you've had to write it in such a way that other people are going to write code and it talks to your uh, set of libraries or library or framework, however you would char characterize it. And you have to talk to them. And, and like, there's not that many choices in terms of how you talk. You uh, know. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Right, so, I, so I, I wonder if uh, you could comment on that. Yes, I, I don't know. So actually, I've, I've, uh, I was speaking at the at the conch, um, not about Liberator, but about yeah, what what you can do wrong with an API, mm. and most of the information comes from my experience with Liberator. So even on 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 one level, you're pretty restricted on on how we can pass things around in in enclosure in a sensible way, and how we can design our interfaces. But when you're following the the internet, you you learn that there's a lot of arguing, for example, about this. Uh, yeah, we have different sides, like those uh, keyword arguments or passing passing maps or bugs or because of performance reasons or having like implicit defaults and, and dynamic bindings to avoid that we need to pass around the same database handle again and again. So I guess actually we have more freedom than visible in the first, so. Could you expand on that? What do you mean by that, more freedom? On first glance, closure is like pass by value. So <laughs> we have fu func normal functional programming and you pass in a value and you get back a value. And I know there's a lot of, of discussion, for example, or used to be a lot of discussion about, yeah, let, let's talk about database handles. When you have like a function which acts on the database, you need to pass around the database handle. And when you want to invoke this func function which uses the database, you need to pass the database handle to this function. And when you compose all your functions together, you always have to pass down the database handle. And that can be pretty annoying. So people started to like develop a different style where like the database handle, which was common, was not passed as a function argument, but you had to bind it to a dynamic variable. Which is which is pretty yeah pretty neat unless uh, until you want to uh, work with two databases and that's when this model uh, falls apart because you can always bind yeah a signal value to this uh, database mm -hmm. handle dynamic variable and then I know there was even like a set of macros or or a helper library where you could. Uh, yeah, different version of of Daphne or like that um, define fun function which uh, like fall back to either this dynamically bound value or you had to could set it explicitly and all that and 
this is pretty interesting because um, you see that even when we yeah, technically pass by value, we have, of course, a way to mutate information, mutate references and closure. And there are places where this is feasible and, and even required, but you still need to do some architecture and design. Whether you want to, yeah, whether you want to pass around this database handle explicitly everywhere, or if there's a nice, you know, level of abstraction where you maybe bound it simply to a, to a dynamic bar, bar and use it from there. So have, that's right. That's really interesting. Um, I I hadn't, I guess, myself thought about or seen the the library you're referring to, where you use some combination of dynamic binding, or you know, have the ability to fall back on dynamic binding, yeah. but also to pass around. Is that your preferred approach or like what where are you kind of at in your thinking about what about how to handle that problem well i don't think that i have a single advice on that mm -hmm. um it absolutely depends on the size of your system maybe you have this larger <laughs> enterprise systems uh which which i don't like at all because i'm <laughs> i'm more for a lot not so like deep nested functions because it's easier to understand but well uh it happens then it might be a good advice at some point to use this kind of dynamic binding because you're also leaking details like this actual database handle and the fact that whatever subsystem uses a database handle uh, to your top level, whatever start server method. So when I want to start the whole system, including web server and backend processing like that, I don't want to pass a database handle in, into it. So there might be a level where you yeah, I can do something like dynamic binding. And, and uh, the, but, sorry, I was just going to ask you to expand. So there, and the reason that you don't want to pass the database handle in is simply proliferation of arguments. Like you don't want to have to right. do that all the time. It's just inconvenient to have to type it over yeah. and over again. Okay. Yeah, not only yeah, and it's not only inconvenient because yeah, first of all, the, it's like there's missing a, an abstraction because we're repeating ourselves. Mm -hmm. And on this high level of um, starting a whole yeah, system, I don't want to be, I don't want to think about database handles. I just want to start subcomponent, whatever, backend processing. And the fact that the backend process job or machine or component or whatever uses a database should be hidden there. So I might pass in whatever reference to a configuration and like that, where you would leak a lot of internal working to the top level if we expose or if you need to pass around every single argument. Yep, okay, makes sense. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's interesting because that's when we come to all this <laughs> thinking and talking about component architecture, which is very interesting because we have uh, Stuart Serra's library and we have uh, Leven and like that, and um, people which uh, don't use uh, either one. What I see is that this we have the necessity to come up with some kind of component abstraction, but I, I've not seen a, a very good fit or very good way how we can fit this with the functional approach. And this yeah, dynamic binding versus explicit argument passing is one of the symptoms, I guess. So you, you mentioned components, and of course, you know, an analogy that gets trotted out again and again, and I'll bring it out again here, is you know, the, the idea of integrated circuits. 
um, you know, fitting them together. Yep. And so, of course, you can do things. I'm actually doing a little bit of uh, hobbyist electronics right now, so I've been thinking about this too. You know, you can certainly do things like, say, I've got this chip and this chip, and this lead on this chip needs to connect to this lead on this other one. And I think that's kind of the direct wiring that you're talking about, where you, you say, I've, I'm assembling a system, and yep. then I pull the bits out of the system and hand them to each other bit that needs them. So the abstraction in um, in electron one of the abstractions in electronics that you would use to get away from that sort of linking everything explicitly to every other thing that needs it is a bus. Yeah. Uh, is that the sort of is that do you think that's use a useful analogy or is there something that we could explore there or, or is there some other avenue you've been going down as you've been thinking about this? Yeah, that's interesting. Um... I, I see most of the problems with passing around uh, stuff in, in, in bigger systems is, um, yeah, there's things which actually do not change, configuration, database handles, and like that. I guess one of the yeah, possible analogy analogies would be uh, regarding electronic engineering. Even when you have like the biggest system um, composed of um, sub-modules and sub-components, at least in the digital world, you have like some common things which... Yeah, need to be connected everywhere, which is like the common ground, the common power, and maybe uh, some kind of clock signal. Mm. And this clock, clock signal, I guess, need to be like injected everywhere. So you have this this kind of explicit wiring there. But it, I don't see... Yeah, I, I, I think one of the differences is that <laughs> with hardware, this is fixed. So someone has taking all the decisions and you have you typically don't have some configuration in hardware which you need to do depending on whether you have a, like a development mode or debug mode or production mode or whether you're using this database or another database you have those external connectors maybe yeah the plugs where you can plug in your yeah your database maybe yeah and those have to be exposed at at some point but I'm, i i've no no not much experience with like large scale electronic engineering but it yeah. could be a good idea to like build components in a in a way which so that they don't expose so many connectors you have to plug together because then you have a lot of ways to plug them together in a in an unfortunate way okay well like i said it was a mostly uninformed analogy on my part in any event so <laughs> yeah. it sounds like it's worth maybe thinking about more but but that leads yeah. me to ask so what what avenues I mean, it sounds like you've been thinking about this a bunch. I mean, you mentioned your upcoming talk, at least upcoming as we record this, at the yeah. Conj about API design and some lessons that you've learned there. Um, yeah. So where, where's your head on all this? What, what have you, any, any revelations that you can share? Well, one of the things I, 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 which I learned when, there's from Jux people, for example, the, the project, which is called Modular, I guess, which is a, a component wrapper for a lot of, of things, um, web components, routing, uh, uh, and all that, database stuff, which are wrapped in a yeah, Stuart Serra component style, and even like a, a blueprint of how to, to build a web project. And the approach they have there is um, a lot... Is in a way that every component, for example, when, when you add a web service, this web service declares a particular interface and in a way publishes itself. As soon as you link that into your, in your system definition, um, there's a router component which basically iterates over all uh, of the dependencies, checks whether this uh, dependency is a web service or exposes some, some web API 
routing definition? And if yes, it yeah collects all this information and uh, wires and routes all the web services to a web server. And this is interesting because this is a way where you publish, where every single component publishes, in a way, itself to the system. The other way, the more explicit and maybe more functional way, um, is that you have this like top-down approach where you declare everything explicitly, um, so you are, yeah, so you are in control in in, in a way. And these are two pretty much, um, yeah, those are two ways how to do it, which are pretty um, at, at the other points or other endings of a, of a continuum. And I'm not sure what is what is better. I don't think there's a single answer. Do you have a sense? Of, yeah, right. So that's often the case. Do you have a sense of what uh, considerations would push you one way or the other on that continuum? Yes, I guess it's mostly the question: How flexible do you need to be in the in the in the sense that when you have this approach where components expose an interface and publish themselves, you would use. I think you would use that when when you don't have control over the big system maybe because it's large enough but you have to be very very careful not to have like conflicts or whatever circular dependencies or yeah any way where this uh, breaks down but I guess it's the only way to scale when you reach a, a certain point because you don't want to have the single routing definition for example or a single hierarchical uh, routing definition, even if it's composed by, of different components. We want to change when you have a subcomponent which exposes, just to, to repeat this example, which exposes a, an HTTP API interface. I don't want to touch like a, a central routing definition just to add another resource to it, another URI, URL, path, subpath, or like that. So in this case, you would, would maybe prefer something where you can change locally this component and all those things are exposed automatically. Now is is the scale you're talking about is that a, is that a sort of um, team size consideration or lines of code consideration like what again <laughs> I suspect there's no hard and fast rule but you know what yeah. are what are the situations you've run into where how do you how would I know when I've gone above the threshold where I no longer want to do the um, the thing where I'm walking in and, and touching a central location and I should switch over to something more kind of self-organizing, if you will. Yeah, I guess that's both Both metrics are important. Um, first of all, I guess uh, team size and, and lines of code uh, correlate in some way, unfortunately. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess it depends on the organization, and that's where we come to, I guess it's Conway's law, where the structure right. of software uh, reflects the structure of organization. And maybe... One rule of thumb is when people are stomping over each other's changes in the routing definition or config files are the same. When you have this big config files where you can tweak all those 200 knobs for this particular enterprise application and people are spending half of their work, working time with uh, resolving merge conflicts in that file, that's a good sign that um, you should yeah, organize this more yeah, I don't know how what's what's the right name or yeah, modular in that particular sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm always looking for stuff like that where it's it's because I think uh, there's a real tendency when we're building software to not know that we're feeling pain, you know, yeah. unless you have some heuristic that you can apply or um, some other way of some some kind of metric, whatever. So like that's really I, I like your 
your heuristic of are we stomping on each other in the file? Like, okay, well, if you see that happening, then maybe it's time to think about whether you should do something else along the lines of what you suggest. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure that we swing around. I mean, it's I'm always this is always tough, right? Like this the show is. I, I think I would be happy to make every. I would maybe the only one that would be happy, but I would be happy to make the show every show two hours long. <laughs> but uh, but I you know we we do try to keep it a little bit tighter than that. And I want to swing around sure. so we have enough time to talk about other things that I'd love to discuss with you. Um, one of which is um, well, I don't know. Let me let me ask you. Should we talk about Liberator today? I mean, I know you've been. This is something that you first started doing quite a while ago. Keeps me busy. Okay, so is this? Is, what should we? I'll let, I'm going to throw it over to you, Billy. Liberator, give me the give me the scoop. What 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 do you want to tell me about Liberator? Um, yeah, Liberator is what happens when you're uh, trying to learn a new language, and you you publish your um, half baked results to the public, and people start using it. <laughs> awesome. uh, my wife put it very nicely. So after I guess it was like after the first con, where it was. Um, <laughs> She she told me, um, okay, nice. You you you're spending your your spare time, which I don't have a lot, as you can imagine. Sure, uh, having a, a bigger family, uh, you're spending your that little bit of spare time hacking on stuff which you actually do for uh, yeah, as your as your regular work, but nobody pays for it. And now you're coming back from this conference and tell me, oh, there are a lot of people that are using that and, and like earning money with it. So what's the deal? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I explained to her that her even her like commercial MacBook is using a lot of open source work for yeah, written by people um, who don't earn any money with it, like directly earn. So in the end, it it brought me a, a lot of uh, yeah contracts and, and and work and like that. So I guess it paid off. The work paid off uh, pretty nicely. Uh, yeah, but it, that's my <laughs> like the the meta story of Liberator. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly you're responsible. I, I never wanted that to be. Hey, of course I wanted that to be successful, not um, because of myself, but because I thought the idea was good and uh, might be a good contribution to to the closure library ecosystem. But I never wanted it to be successful. Like in this way where you have suddenly, yeah, you're responsible whether you want or not or whether you're charging money for it or not. If I would publish, uh, yeah, simply some breaking changes uh, without taking care and writing it like in red letters to the change log, I guess a lot of people would not maybe not be angry at me but have quite a bit bad time during whatever next deployments or whenever this uh, would bite them. So, yeah, that's a kind of responsibility. It's this interesting, for- though, because, I mean, and, and I I think like you do. I mean, if I publish a library, I, I also consider, you know, if people are using it, well, and I, I haven't done anything like Liberator, but, you know, if I was using something and I found out a bunch of people were using it, then I would really think twice about publishing breaking changes. And I, and I know that, for instance, um, when Rich is thinking about change the closure, he takes he takes backwards compatibility very very seriously, yep. um, and I think for very good reasons. But but you mentioned the word responsibility, and and I guess I'm curious to ask, where do you think that sense of responsibility originates, given that um, no one is paying you for this work, and in fact, not only are yep. they not paying you, they are quite often using it to make money, and yep. and so I think an alien that landed here from another planet or someone that that came to our community from some some place where there was no connection to the kind of evolved community 
a yep. set of expectations would, would say that's your wife with perfect example. She's like, well, how yep. does that work? It doesn't make any sense to people who haven't been involved in this before. So where do you think that sense of responsibility originates? Like why do people like you and I go, oh yeah, of course I'm not going to publish breaking changes. I have a, I have a duty to these people that are, you know, giving me nothing in return except their usage of a thing I created. Well, the, the opposite thing would be, and you could tell a, the revenge of the unpaid open source developer <laughs> where uh, the hypothetical case that a developer is annoyed that his nice library is used by a lot of people, whatever, a <laughs> uh, Linux kernel module, which is used by a lot of uh, manufacturers of network gear, routers or like that. And he's annoyed because he may, he figured that he would maybe get a well-paid job and work at one of the companies in the end, but he did not uh, end up there. And so he got, gets angry at some point and sneaks in a very nasty bug into this, into this software. And he always published this software like with no warranties. It's open source, GPL, EPL, whatever. So, and so that he always could like refer to it and say, Hey, there's no warranties. Um, I just did what I did. You, you are not forced to use it. So, but he did it intentionally just to, just because he was annoyed and want to, yeah, take revenge on, on all those on the, on the public, which is, uh, not giving him a job. So mm -hmm. I think we, we would consider this, uh, some point, some kind of unethical act, right? Uh, yeah, I'll grant the point. <laughs> yeah. yep. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess there's, yeah, like a slippery slope somehow between working, working on actively harming people by introducing a bug. But there's also the, the thing that um, when I introduce some bug to Liberator, for example, and that's the best example for me because that's what I know, I actually harm people, mm -hmm. not physically, but they have a bad time. They need maybe developers, maybe users, um, and like that, whether I want or I don't want. I could simply stop all the work and say, uh, well, I don't mind anymore. Do a fork. The licenses are licenses are that you can, whatever, rename it to whatever you want and and and, and use that. But I, I guess this is still different from actively doing something which makes the situation worse. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't have like a legal contract between any user and me, there's something like a a practical contract. So people are relying on my work and just saying. Oh, they weren't aware of that. There's no warranty, or no. I know you cannot rely on anything. Why should I then publish the software when I would say to people, "This is just experimental code, like <laughs> experimental science research code"? Would not make any sense. So I published this, and I know that people will use that. Maybe I was not aware, so aware about the fact, or about the the possibility of how many people and companies that suddenly use my software. That's the surprising part to me. Okay, well, that makes sense. And like I said, I mean, I, I was really, in a sense, playing devil's advocate because I think uh, yeah, you sure. know, we, we, we both live in sort of the same universe, and I, I definitely feel the same sense of, of obligation, you know. Uh, yeah, and I think it's not only hypothetical. I had a conversation with a, with a German uh, developer fellow the other day who's just on its way contributing uh, uh, something to Liberator, and we stumbled over the fact that the the sum error macro wasn't available. And he was like, oh, can I simply um, 
yeah, bump the closure revision in the projects a bit. Because oh, it's 1.4, it's pretty outdated, and I'm always yeah, pretty scared that, that it still works with 1.4, but I have a test set and it works, and uh, I'm pretty sure that there are people out there which um, use Liberator on 1.4, and maybe they don't use it the most recent revision, but um, I don't know. I don't want to force this poor developer <laughs> to, to change from 1.4 to 1.5. And I had the problem that, for example, some of my test cases failed when I changed from 1.5 to 1.6 in, in, in the Liberator tests itself, itself because they depend on the order of a set iteration, mm -hmm. the order of elements when you iterate it over a, a hash set, which changed apparently between 1.5 and 1.6. So the test was bogus, but I can imagine that this is something that happens to people in the wild. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I need to, yeah, every breaking change, I need to think very thoroughly about this, whether I will want to do it or not, or whether this is part of uh, the published interface of Liberator. And uh, then you have this problem of what do you consider to be the published interface? Every public method or only what is uh, stated in the documentation or every weird way people found to use Liberator? Yeah, I'd like to come back to that. I, I, wanna, um, I just want to step, step aside for a second. There might be people in our audience who haven't heard of or used Liberator. So if you could take like a minute to describe it. Then I'd like to come back to that question of, of the oh, okay. what is the public interface. That's super interesting, but I really yeah. feel like we got to catch people up real quick. Yeah, sure. Especially the public interface is pretty un, uh, unusual for for a library, I guess. So Liberator is first of all a port of Erlang's web machine to to Clojure. It's a library to create server-side implementations of HTTP services in a yeah pretty restful way which means in a very declarative way, and it emits with some magic spells and incarnations, it emits a, a ring handler. The triggers that you yeah, declare on a very high level using callback functions, whether the actual resource exists, which are the possible media types, uh, which this resource serves, which are allowed methods. Um, do you want to redirect after a post? Did you actually delete the resource at that URL or did you only like schedule the deletion and all that and then you have a ring ring handler which you can mount somewhere uh, using a routing library. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's really because it, it right. I mean I think that the original name web machine kinda hints at the you know, yeah. handle the details of the the mechanics. Okay, so great. So that's yeah. that's a great explanation. I think people understand that. So I want to come back now to this question of, you know, what is the interface? Because I think it's a great one. You know, you yeah. have talk of things like contracts, you know, which would be about data shape or about yeah. APIs or public functions versus behavior. So, it's, I know you've been thinking about this too. What, what's what is my what is my interface? Right? What? How do you how do you tell? Yeah, great. So basically, in in, in Liberator, we have a single function or a single. Yeah, there's a macro which which is a typical def macro for it. Um, we have a single function, which is the resource function. And, and you, the, this resource function is actually uh, also a little yeah, badly named because it isn't a resource. It doesn't something resource, resourcey in HTTP sense, but it creates a handler function. So it's a, a function that creates a function, which is also yeah, a first yeah, minor obstacle for new developers 
it takes as the arguments a, a list of callbacks, a map actually, or yeah, a, a, a keyword arguments list for the what happens if decisions. So mm-hmm. to provide to liberate it to this single, we have a single single function to provide to it a list of callback functions which decide for every single case what should happen when the when the server needs to decide whether this resource exists, for example, then it calls a function which you provide and you can then return a, a Boolean value. So we have a single function as an interface, basically. That's on the paper when you would create with codocs or like that, the API. And, but now you talked about the fact that your your actual interface could be considered for yeah. some arbitrary library, could be considered some other combination of facts about your software. Right, right. and this is pretty hard. So... Um, had a time when I, when I was commuting to to Munich to a project by train, which was nice because I had a lot of lot of time to work on on the train. Which is, at least in Germany, it's uh, well most of the time it's a very very nice experience. And but when I didn't want to work on the project because they had all this Java enterprisey database stuff, and you could not certain tasks you could not do offline. So I started to write the documentation for Liberator, uh, like the classical tutorial, introduction, motivation, and I thought this would be like a two days task in total. But it turned out to be quite more because I realized that there was so much more to this API than just this provide me a callback function because you needed to specify not only what arguments do the callback functions take and what should they return and what's happening then with the callback function. So in the documentation, we need to explain what happens when you when you're providing this this arguments? It's like maybe you have this complicated numeric science, whatever deep machine learning functions where you technically provide, I don't know, ten floating point parameters, but in the documentation you need to explain what happens with those parameters. What does the function the function actually do, and what are side effects, and what are or whatever uh, valid input ranges and possible error cases and like that. And in Liberated turned out to be pretty, yeah, pretty complicated or pretty, was a lot of, lot of writing. And finally, we, I came up with this decision graph, which is also, also one thing which I, uh, which uh, Erlang's web machine has. So, and this big graph shows like the, yeah, the way between decisions, the flow between decisions, where you, where do you end up, and which dis, which decision is called, or in which order are the decisions called, which is something um, that you cannot read from the the function signature, for example. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty important to know: do we first check for authorization, or do we first check for existence, for example? And Liberator has a fixed order of decisions. This is something which you need to, to write down in the documentation, for example, and which is then part of the interface. I could not change that simply by, by a random, <laughs> random, random yeah, revision because it was bra- would break a lot of applications. Right, and so that, that makes writing docs a little scary, right? Because you could say something in the docs that you know, people could very reasonably interpret as a, as a guarantee. Um, right and then get surprised when it doesn't work like they expect because you didn't see it as a guarantee. So, I mean, I guess maybe that argues for things like having having tests that that check the, uh, or, or that assert the things that 
that the documentation says, or as some people would say, I'm not sure I personally agree with this, that you know the tests are documentation. I don't know how I feel about that even after you know, <laughs> you, you know, many, many years of being exposed to, you know, the sort of testing culture that we have as a community now. But uh, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Just as context, I guess Liberator has, has a pretty decent test coverage because there's a lot of, of stuff <laughs> which can or what can go wrong. And um, I don't know. I don't know the test coverage. I guess it's maybe not as high as I would expect, but uh well, all use cases that I can imagine, and all those ways how you can and how you can walk this decision graph to, to your yeah. Finally, in the end, there comes uh, an HTTP response status code. This is the, the, yeah, primary outcome of all the decisions. We have tests for all that, and HTTP is pretty pretty. It's a pretty pretty big protocol we have. You have content negoci negotiation and all those uh, very, yeah, detailed stuff. But I, I would never consider this a documentation for the user. So maybe more like uh, something like a um, yeah, technical documentation for for service, like a service documentation. When you consider all television or whatever <laughs> electronic component or or com electronic um, whatever um, system, there was were these nice service documents where every like chip is described and maybe even like voltage points or points where they annotate which is the expected voltage for for that uh, for that state or for that input and like that or maybe even the little pictures by the expected waveforms at that point and that's more how i treat the the tests when when you want to look at tests as as documentation so hmm. on the other hand Tests are pretty important because I, I couldn't maintain, maintain Liberator at all if I had if I hadn't this um, good test coverage because I do this from time to time. There might be like two or three months where I do not touch the code, and it's pretty easy to introduce some minor incompatibility or well instead of of nil you you start to return an empty string and due to whatever reason this starts to break your ring adapter integration and all this. <laughs> annoying stuff. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I treat the the tests. That's kind of service documentation. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. The the, the I think the uh, data sheet is the term that I see used on uh, integrated yeah. components, and I like that idea yeah. of the tests being at that level. Um, yeah, right. oh, that's very cool. Well, so I would I'm struggling because I would love to keep talking, but I think we should probably start. Um, uh, winding it down, but uh, but you know before we do close it out, um, uh, I, I I just want to give you a chance if there's anything that you are especially excited about lately or on any topic, liberator or otherwise, that you want to talk about uh, today, that'd be great. Otherwise, we will have to make time in the future to have you back on the show and we can talk more because I can <laughs> tell that we would probably never run short of topics. But uh, before we go today, did, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, discuss that you're especially uh, psyched about you'd like to share? Surprisingly, and that's maybe the the thing that excites me is that I find the the whole closure thing settled down a little bit in a in a in a good way. So we don't have those like major announcements every half a year. So people can can work uh, without having to whatever change to the latest technology, even if it's good. Maybe it, 
whatever Datomic or Closure Script or whatever Spark uh, clusters and like that. So my experience, but my personal experience, uh, maybe also because I'm not too much into the front end thing and too much into Closure Script, is that it's a pretty, pretty quiet time right now regarding major announcements and I'm liking it because I can work because without <laughs> having to, to, to think about changing a database technology or migrating to transducers or to whatever channels and, and async and like that. So I can just work. Yeah, I definitely agree that we've achieved a good place. Although I, I would say, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction to this, you know, the things that you mentioned, transducers, core async, you know, um, those are major additions to the language, but they were additions, right? And so there's a sense right. in which as long as nothing old breaks, as long as we don't, uh, we, as long as the people in charge of closure, which I'm not um, in part of that process, as long as they don't say, well, we're introducing core async and it replaces function calls or something yeah. else yeah. core, then we're still good, right? I mean, I, I get the impetus towards oh, this is awesome, it's so much better than the other alternatives I've availed me, I really feel compelled to go and replace this because it'll make my code clearer, shorter, faster, whatever attribute you like. But at the same time, I mean, you're running Liberator on Clojure 1.4, right? And like it does, yeah. I don't think no, it's... Think. Right, and it's doing, it's doing things that you probably could do better if you took advantage of, you mentioned some arrow, for instance. Um, but it wouldn't be better in the sense of doing something categorically different. It would just be... Um, better in a kind of an internal way. D does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I had this this kind of discussion with Malcolm Sparks, who was or is one of the major contributors to to, to Liberator, and he's done uh, Yada recently, mm -hmm. which is um, also a library to create uh, RESTful resources. And it's like, in a way, it's like Liberator, except that he has this built from ground up on, I guess it's uh, manifold, so you have full asynchronicity and all that and he's pushing the declarativity of even further than than liberator and we talked about how could we maybe evolve liberator or maybe yada could be just an experiment or should this be a something on its own and uh, i got a, a pretty good advi advice from him from him i guess and i like it he he told me that um at some point, the project has reached a particular state, and you can say it's it's never done, but you can say it's it's ready, and that's it. And everything we do from now on is mostly maintenance, and it works, and Liberator works. So there are some missing points which I want to fix or want to add, like the parsing of the of the request bodies, and there are some annoyances with the content negotiation in for the error status codes. But after that, I I would consider it, consider it done, in the sense of how liberator should be, um, which doesn't mean we cannot evolve that any further. But I might consider then this to do in a new project or maybe um, join the Jada uh, wagon and uh, improve Jada instead. So, and I guess that's a pretty important thing in in, in our in our uh, business that. At least in closure, when you have libraries which have a pretty small focus, um, they reach a point when they are done. When they do, they work. When you have like matrix multiplication or matrix manipulation, well, at some point you have all the operations. It's reasonably fast. Maybe it, it takes uh, advantage of some GPU or whatever, but it's done. When you can multiply and do the invert 
invitation or whatever, it's done. There's no no reason to try to push this mm-hmm. uh, further to new to new functions or new functionality. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really. Uh, we actually had Malcolm on the show. Uh, the the episode is not yet out as of you and I having okay. this discussion. We talked about Yada, and uh, I think he gave you great advice. Um, and it's it, but the weird thing is how hard that advice can be to follow because it, it, to me at least I've hit that point with at least one library, Cause Adam. I look at it and I go, yeah, there's a bunch of things I'd like to do, but really mm-hmm. it's done. It does the thing that it's supposed to do, yeah. and it doesn't need to do anything else to be considered an you know an, an implementation, a sufficient implementation of that idea. But it's hard, right? Like I think there's this yeah. impetus towards no, no. If you're not adding features, then you're you're doing something wrong. So I think it's really good yeah. advice. Yeah, even during fixing a bug, I, I have so many ideas and we could add, could add this and that. And, right. oh, no, this would break compatibility. Oh, I have an idea. I could do this instead and this would be backward compatible, but we had a new parameter like that. And, well, someone you end, uh, end up at this big, big thing mm-hmm. with a lot of knobs you, you need to turn instead of two different machines where one does one and the other machine does a different thing. Right. Uh, well, what's that's the closure way to do it, right? Have mm-hmm. uh, small, sharp tools. Yep. Well, very cool. So I think we this would be a great point to transition to our last question. Although, as so yep. often happens, uh, before I ask you to to give our audience some advice or to share some advice, um, you have just gotten done uh, sharing some really good advice. But I'll still ask you anyway, <laughs> since that is our tradition. Uh, maybe it's the one you just gave, but maybe you have something else in mind. Uh, so, of course, we ask people to share a piece of advice that they've received or that they like to give. What what advice do you have for our audience today, Billy? Well, I actually have two advices. So. Go for it. Um, yeah, so the first advice is be patient. This is my personal advice. So I've, I've done software development for yeah, about 15 years professionally, starting during school and all that. But... We were, I'm self-employed, so I don't know the corporate life, except as a, well, external consultant and like that. Uh, but my advice is be patient. Uh, my, for me personally, everything settled into place in a fortunate way. You need to, to prepare your life that good things can happen. So that's my advice as a, as a developer. I could not ever imagine that I end up where I am right now, but I think Looking back, I made it easy for luck to give me this, this to to me to end me up in this situation. And the other advice is: do not be patient. <laughs> if I would have been patient, I never would have built Liberator. I would have waited for someone who who built something which uh, I would consider be good enough to do web services. And uh, I know there are actually like three or four approaches. One by Malcolm Spark. Sparks at that time to port web machine or something like web machine to to closure, but I wasn't patient. I wanted to implement a web service in a way which I considered would be a good way, like talking HTTP in the right way and 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 having a, a real resource and using the HTTP status codes and like that and re- using plain ring and and composure was uh, uh, pretty painful. So I started it. So don't be patient. Do it um, when you need it and you have the time. Awesome. I love it. Seemingly contradictory advice, but of course that makes complete sense when heard together. I really, really like that. Well, Billy Meyer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate that you took the time out of what's obviously an extremely busy life 
It was a fascinating conversation. I always love to talk to people about their philosophy of software, and I learned a lot from, from talking to you. There's uh, a couple of great analogies in there, and I think our, our audience will like it too. So thanks a ton for taking the time to come on today. Yeah, thanks you too. It was great fun, and thanks for having the opportunity to uh, broadcast my thoughts and your thoughts to Ah, all the people out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely have you back and do more of that at some point in the in the future. So, uh, with that though, we will close it down. This has been another episode of the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Billy Meyer on Twitter at Ordnung SW Prague, O-R-D- N-U-N-G-S-W-P-R-O-G. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 